Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by John McEnroe, Gabriella Sabatini, and Novak Djokovic. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He was born and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts, and in 1988 got to seven in the world. He won 12 titles, an Olympic silver medal, and he posted wins over McEnroe, Connors, and Noah, to name a few. Tim Mayotte is today's guest. Are you ready to do this? I am, I am. Cool, cool. So I have to tell you, as a fellow New Englander, I'm not sure that you've been given the, I don't know, maybe the credit you deserve, I think... When the book's written, you're, it's, it's James Blake and you, uh, as far as the two greatest New England tennis players there ever was. So. You're putting him in front of me, Craig. Well, he's, he's four, right? And you got, he got to four and you got to seven, right? Yeah, but how many tournaments? You know, it's different. Okay, well, I, we'll discuss it. Uh, gentlemen, you hear is former world number seven, Springfield, Massachusetts' own uh, Tim Mayotte. My man, really great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for being with me. Greg, it's great to be here. So up <laughs> about today's discussion. Well, so I have to tell you, I have three distinct memories of you. Um, the first is I was with my father in Hartford when you played Davis Cup with John, and I think uh, you played the rubber against Becker. I could never get out of my mind how hard you competed, but also I, I have this distinct memory of Boris throwing his racket into the crowd and the fans getting a little agitated with him, but it was like an epic, epic match. Yeah, the whole weekend was uh, Oof. incredible. Uh, it was incredible. Well, unfortunately, I lost in five sets. I was so depressed after losing that match. I took a, the Peter Pan bus home from the Hartford bus station back to Boston. It was a crushing, maybe the worst, uh, most painful loss of my career. And now my second memory of you is... I was riding my bicycle down the bike path on the West Side Highway, and I'd heard about these red clay courts, and I'd heard that you had some involvement over there, and I peeked my head in, and you were indeed, like, humping clay. You, were, you had clay in a wheelbarrow, and you were, you were actually putting your back into it. You were working on those courts, and I actually was too terrified to say hello to you at that moment. You looked like you were working hard. And then the final time I, I, it was last year at the U S open when we talked for a moment and you were fairly distraught with the political climate of uh, the country. Yeah. Uh, just one note. I want to make a plug for the red clay courts. Uh, for those who've been lucky enough to be there, that's actually in New York city and Manhattan. And uh, a good friend of mine, Mark McIntyre, who was also president of USTA East uh, spearheaded a group that brought those courts back from the edge. They were, had been stripped of all the red clay back in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, and a wonderful partnership. And here we go, 10 beautiful red clay courts on the Upper West Side. And if people are interested in donating, it's the Riverside Clay Court Tennis Association. And hello to Mark McIntyre. Shout out to the Red Clay on the West Side. Every now and then we pop our heads in there as well. So so listen, we do a five set format. The first set is the off the court report. What have your last 20 weeks been like? Now, you spilled the beans because we were trying to do this for a while. You have a young child. What has it been like being in this pandemic with a young child? It's uh, been both a blessing and a, a curse. Having a new daughter, seven months old, obviously changes your focus. And then with the early weeks and months of COVID, our academy, the Tim Mayotte Academy here in Concord, shut down. But at the same time, getting to spend so much time with my daughter and my wife and I, uh, baby Anna. So that's been fantastic. And then like the rest of the country coming out and nervously kind of moving into re-emerging into society. I every day wake up and so glad I'm from the Northeast where we have gotten really wonderful guidance from our governors and our mayors here and things are getting pretty safe. 
And so we're back running almost at full steam. Now you're in, you're in Massachusetts. Uh, where are you exactly? Where is the Thoreau Club, the Tim Mayotte Tennis Academy at the Thoreau Club? Where is that? Are you in Concord? Just a stone's throw from uh, historic Lexington and in Concord where the revolutionaries uh, took over and started to kick butt on the, uh, the, the English army. And uh, we're having a revolution in tennis here. So it sounds to me like you've been pleased with your leadership. Is that Duval Patrick? No, it's uh, Charlie Baker. Charlie Baker. Probably the most popular governor in the country. And we've had wonderful leadership. And a lot of folks have paid a big price, obviously. It's painful to shut down businesses. But now we're reemerging. And we're, we only had 106 cases yesterday in the whole state. And uh, so a lot of sacrifices leading to uh, a good reopening. What what kind of grade would you give yourself for your behavior during this uh, quarantine, during this pandemic? Have you done a good job? I think a very, very good job. I wouldn't say perfect, but very good. Here at the club, we've had very stringent uh, requirements with uh, temperature checks and the kids can take their masks off outside Inside, they have to have the masks on, sanitizing, kids can't touch the balls. For myself, because of my daughter and my wife, uh, just really staying work and, uh, and home. That's it, man. No messing around. Right around the corner from the Battle of Bunker Hill. <laughs> Let's move into our second set. This is what we call the On the Court Report. Typically, we talk about you know what's going on in tennis, and I would like to get your perceptions of some of these subjects, there's a lot going on, so I want to do it kind of quickly. The U.S. Open. Can't see it happening. I just don't. I don't think they're going to be able to overcome all the obstacles with traveling from different countries, uh, keeping everybody safe. You know, basketball is one thing. Baseball is one thing. But when you start talking about the whole world, and I'm sure uh, our president, Donald Trump, who's into the open many times he's probably not in good favor with the USTA because uh, you know the COVID situation being so out of control I'm sure will have a, a big impact on the final decision obviously I hope they have it and mostly because you know players tennis has to get back out there and the middle ranked players need to make a living what is what have your what have your perceptions been of all the exos that we've been seeing Oh, it's great for the sport. Uh, the uh, It's just nice to have something up there in the tennis channel, ESPN. I've been following a little bit of the world team tennis down in, down at the Greenbrier. That's fantastic. Yeah, obviously. So, so you've enjoyed it. You haven't found it to be lousy. Uh, it's, I think given the, given the occasion, you can't say anything's lousy. I mean, it's, they're out there. They're trying. Obviously, very disappointed in the, some of the male players who uh, Djokovic, and not just him, but, you know, with Zarev and not uh, paying attention to protocols. That's just, it's just not a good move. But uh, I know they're excited to get up back out, get the game going. And so you have to give a, give a tip of the hat for for that kind of initiative but please everybody let's just stay safe do you have any kind of fluid relationship with any of these tournament directors uh usta at one time i know you were a lot more involved than you seem to be in the last 10 years but do you know anything that maybe we don't no just hearsay uh, a lot of uh, yeah i was i was uh worked for the usta for two years and then before before that, I was the, actually the uh, at Djokovic's position. I was president of the ATP Player Council. No, I know it. But uh, do you hear any uh, interesting uh, Michigas? No, <laughs> that's a great a great word. No, just just what different people hear and uh, from the folks like my friend uh, who was at the USTA East. You know, he was. He was 50-50 on whether the Open was going to happen. I, I, I just don't know if they're going to be able to do all these controlling. But, but nobody had a definitive uh, insight. We've heard it's teetering. What are your opinions of early in this pandemic, uh, Roger sort of tweeting and then talk kind of heating up about a potential merger of the women and the men? I think it's a, it's a fun thing to talk about. 
in the abstract, I sure as hell wouldn't want to be in the room negotiating the details because uh, the, at least from what I understand from the ATP WTA, the men's game just has a wider appeal, particularly in relationship to sponsorships overall. Now I'm not saying individual matches at the, at the slams can have higher ratings, but overall the men make more money. That may change, but uh, so I, I wouldn't suspect they could overcome those negotiations, particularly given that we already have some very nice crossover. You know, it's really the only, I guess it's one of few sports along with maybe gymnastics, figure skating that has men and women competing side by side. We have a lot of that. And uh, if we can do more of that, great. I just can't see the tours coming together. It would be cool if they could do it, though, wouldn't it? I mean, if they could uh, get it all together and rocking, like the sport came up to, uh, you know, the 21st century in a way that, like, we came out of the, we came out of the situation and it was some kind of incredible situation, you know, different deal. It would be neat, but it's tough, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, anybody who's been to Indian Wells or to Miami or, uh, you know, the, the Rome, turn of Rome. Rome. I mean, where the men and the women are together, can, I mean, can you get a better ticket in sports? I, I mean, it's just incredible. You go on this practice court, you go on that practice court, you've got matches. It's just, it's, it's a phenomenal experience. And that's why those tournaments are, you know, incredibly popular. You have a fairly vigorous Twitter, um, I think, presence in a way, um, less about tennis and more about politics. You know, as I prefaced earlier, you know, we talked quickly at at the U.S. Open and, you know, you were, you know, distraught about the political climate here in the country. I think a lot of my listeners, maybe not all, but I think a lot are, are, are like-minded. How are you feeling about things here? I'm about to slide into August, moving into, you know, kind of the money months before the election. I was uh, very upset back then, and I'm even more outraged now. It's unfortunate. I, before this administration, Republican, Democrat, I was never very political. But uh, I just saw an interview on Fox where Trump was reciting his, uh, I think it went something like. Oh, man, I mean, this guy is such a potato. I mean, forget about it. I know what you're talking about. It's his best. <laughs> It's like a mother car. I mean, the guy, you know, unfortunately, he uh, he's losing his mental faculties and he's got a, a evil streak. And right now he doesn't pay attention to the laws. And uh, I have a good friend who was a, uh, worked at high up in the Defense Department under Obama. And, you know, he's wary that things are going to get more, uh, more or going to get uglier before the election. But uh, I think a large segment of the folks here realized that, uh, you know, again, whether it's conservative or it's uh, liberal, that's one thing, but we have to pay attention to laws and he's, he simply doesn't pay attention to the laws. Yeah. Maybe um, there's no pain, no gain. Maybe this is the death rolls of, of some of this sort of systemic racism and, and some of these things. We have to wake up and realize that this has been part of our history and, you know, really, uh, what's been so nice, like watching Coco Goff with her uh, her tweets coming out. I mean, it's 17, 16 years old, that kind of thoughtfulness. And LeBron James stepping up. And I think Sloan Stevens has done some great work. And it's just... Uh, Naomi Osaka. You know, um, you mentioned Coco Goff. I've said it now on a few of my shows, but, you know, Ali was 19, I think, or 18 when he won the Rome Olympics. And... From that moment, he really obviously distinguished himself as a statesman, right? As a political giant. Yep. And there was something about Coco Goff's 16-year-old Coco Goff's speech in Delray where she said, she said, Trayvon Martin was murdered when I was eight years old. And here we are now. I'm 16. And this shit is still going on. Just me a little bit of, uh, you know, Arthur Ashe, obviously, who we all still look up to. And I was lucky enough to uh, know him. And he said the thing that way back, I, I can't remember how many years ago, but he said, and this is uh, when he had been diagnosed with AIDS. He said, having AIDS is nothing 
compared to racism. And this is when uh, AIDS was a was a death a death no. I mean, uh, you can think of the crushing of the spirit that happens on uh, for so many folks, and that uh, what's made tennis great throughout the years is that we've had these champions to speak up, whether it's uh, Billie Jean on, on women's issues or Arthur, and obviously that Coco, and I think Sloane Stevens and a, a few other folks have just really Osaka have done a remarkable job. It makes you so proud to be a part of the sport. Let's move into our third set. This is uh, the portion of our show where you talk about your career. And I admittedly not only could not find that much about you, I don't know that much about you other than some of the more giant bullet points. Where does your tennis begin? So my family, like a number of other tennis families was essentially a tennis academy. <laughs> so whether it's the Everett's or... So, now, I know that your brother, Chris, yes. was a very good player. 79 in the world. In he, got to, he got to 80 in the world, 79 in the world. And John was not as good of a player, but he ended up being a prominent agent at, I think, ProServe. ProServe, exactly. And okay. John Sorry. had uh, ATP doubles points. So, so all um, you guys played pro tennis. Yeah, and then, well, there's eight of us, and everybody else played. All eight of you. Eight yeah. of you. Yeah. So yeah. hang on a second. So you grew up in actually in Springfield, Massachusetts. Is that true? Yeah. And you talk about red clay courts. There's a beautiful eight red clay in Forest Park. Uh, which have been there since the twenties. And uh, it was just like a tennis academy. We went over there, you know, I watched the older guys and uh, learned from watching. And then we would just hang out all day. And my sister, Mary was very good. She was one of the highly ranked juniors and uh, throw in a few other people. And you had a makeshift tennis academy and Chris and John were playing college tennis. So I aspired to that. And then uh, where did they play? So John went to Holy Cross. Yeah, the Cross. Worcester. Shout yeah. out to the Cross. Oh, you you have you an alumnus? I am not. I uh but I am a New Englander, so I uh you know, I, I know I know your neck of the woods somewhat. And then Chris set the example. He went off University of South Carolina. He was a gamecock. Yes. <laughs> do you do you know Randy Osga by chance? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. So Randy was my was my pro. And and I think that maybe Barry Gilbert uh, ended up there when he was there. Is that true? Barry, they called him the Bear. Uh, they had a great team, the Gamecocks. I think they were top twenty in the country, and uh, a whole host of other good players under Coach Ron Smar. So, but seeing Chris go off, he was three years older than me. It just uh, lit a fire under my butt, and then uh, from there, you know, I I was very good as a super junior. You were a super junior. Number one in New England in the 10 and unders. Already serving volleying, believe it or not. Then my dad pushed me too hard. Uh, he'd do things. Uh, it wasn't like Agassiz, but it was because my dad would make us do jump the fence, shovel the snow, hit serves, go out there in the freezing. I hated it for a year and a half. But at that point, I already had all the basics. So I was taught by my brothers and sisters. And then I got back into it when I was 13. Uh, I was, uh, I think, 47 and the 14 and unders in New England. And then uh, three and a half years later, I was number one in the country in the 18s. And, and, and what does that mean? That, does that mean you just started winning a lot of tournaments every weekend, get invited to USTA camps, playing the Orange Bowl? Is that, is that, can you explain it? Well, what happened was I was actually very late to the game, so, which in some ways is good, meaning that uh, – I came up, it wasn't until I, I was almost 17 when I started playing national tournaments. So all the other highly ranked national players knew each other, but I was an outsider. Who were some of the guys that were like sort of the the big names right then and there? Uh, Scott Davis was probably the biggest. He was, uh, I think at one point, he might still be the uh, one of the most national championships of any any junior. Yeah, for our listeners, Scotty Davis had a great pro career, but his he, I think they consider him one of the greatest juniors there ever was. Great player. He was at Stanford with me. 
uh, Fritz Buning, who is now down in New York area teaching Big Fritz. He was at UCLA. He was one of the best players in the country. And so there was a group of guys that went, you know, top 50 in the world. Uh, Mike Leach from New England actually won the NCAAs. Mike Leach. Very strong player. And then, uh, but those guys really knew each other. Uh, the beauty I had was USTA didn't know me. And, but you come up with a certain freshness. I know a lot of kids, they get burned out. But you must have been really good. When did you decide, you know, how did you get to Stanford? How did that happen? Again, it really happened very, very quickly. I didn't get recruited by many except for a couple Ivy League schools. My mom's excited that I, I didn't go there, but I got into Yale and Princeton. She was <laughs> Oh, that's good, man. You almost have a good school. But, uh, I, I always suspected you were somewhat of a brainiac. I didn't quite yeah. know if that was true, but that's pretty good, man. You, so you got, yeah. you got into – that's pretty good, Yale and Princeton. Yeah. And then uh, – but Dick Gould always uh, – you know, Dick's actually – Dick Gould, who is – I think he won national titles 15 times Stanford – with Stanford and always open to opportunity. So Dick, I was playing a Burlingame national hard courts, but I was lowly low ranked. And he already had McEnroe who was 14 in the world playing at Stanford, John McEnroe. I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> Dick said, you know, he, he was the only coach from the West coast that said hi to me. And I went and visited the campus. And then the next year I just took off and Dick offered me a scholarship. And uh, there was no question that Stan, you know, Stanford at that point, I went and my, trip it'd be hard for kids to recognize this or realize that this is even possible now but when i on my recruiting trip to stanford i saw john McEnroe, who was 12 in the world played elliot telsher yeah from ucla who was 37 in the world in front of 7500 people in a giant basketball stadium i was like you know how could i not go to this place but he had the stadium packs 7,500 people going crazy, cheerleaders, the band. And uh, that's what college tennis was like back then. I mean, I saw some video of McEnroe play John Sadri in a final, and there was, like, people hanging from rafters, man. Wild. Well, they still do a great job at Athens, at Georgia. We played there. Yeah. Uh, the Bulldogs in the finals, the team championship. One of my great moments in, in tennis uh, they were, of course, we were playing number one singles, and they were barking like crazy at us. So every time I'd uh, have, win a big point, <laughs> turn around and start growling at the crowd, and it was it was intense. But it was all all in good fun. I mean, you get a spirit like that. Five thousand people watching. Are you a believer in college tennis today? Does college tennis still work today? Or what as a feeder into the pro to become a pro player yeah i think it's it's definitely an alternative it's uh we we've seen that with john isner we've seen that with uh with a handful of other guys who've been out there playing um so it's definitely more and more i think it's an option because the game has gotten so physical and there's very few players ready to go out at 17 18 how, when did you know you were going to be a pro player? Did you know before you went to Stanford or was you at, did you, did you win the nationals and then turn pro? Uh, I had a sense. I played some of the pro pro uh, circuit satellites the summer before I went to Stanford. I beat a couple guys, I think ranked in the top 200. At that point I knew I was, I was good. But then I really knew I beat uh, – was probably the most exciting moment early in my career. I was at Stanford my junior year. Uh, Barry McKay, thank uh, – wonderful Barry, the yeah. uh, California Bear, gave me a wild card into the old Trans Am tournament. And uh, Jimmy Connors, I could play Connors in the first round. Big crowd. And – all my friends from Stanford, maybe 40 or 50 of them come. So maybe about six, six, 7,000 people. And I beat Connors. And, uh, you know, having my buddies there from Stanford was just, uh, you know, absolutely unbelievable. So at that moment, obviously, Connors was two or three in the world. By, oh, by the way, the smile on his face as he's telling this is as authentic and excellent as you could see. 
That's a good moment, huh? What was that match like? You take the court. Were you terrified? Yeah, I was terrified. Playing Jimbo, and I'm looking up at my friends, and they are, uh, but they're going crazy for me. Connors was killing me. Six three, five two, two breaks. I'm sure Jimmy just let down, and uh, I came back and uh, beat him seven six in the third. Come on! And the crazy, my friends were going. The people were going nuts. And then the great thing is, you got to love Connors. So then the next time I play him, he was so angry. So angry. I play him next time. I think it was uh, six months later. I had just turned pro. And he he's crushing me. Oh, he beats me 6-0, 1-0. And every time we change games, he mumbles to me. He goes, effing San Francisco surprise. I said, <laughs> he said, every time we change ends. And he, he, just, he was firing F-bombs at you. He played, he was playing, you know, like Connors can play. And I hadn't really, you know, I couldn't keep up with him. And he was just lacing returns. It was just beautiful, perfect Connors. I was shell-shocked. So, so was there a conversation after you beat Jimmy? Like, it's like, yo, yo, you're, go- you're leaving school and you're going pro. Let's go make some money. No, no, Jimmy is. No, no, no. I mean with your people, with your brother. With your- the next week I told Dick Gould, I said, Dick, you know, because he, he has to free the scholarship up. Because right. uh, he said, look, I'm, I'm going to stick with the team and for one more year uh, through the season, but I'm not going to play next year. And Dick's the best because he had already gone through it with many players, Roscoe Tanner. Uh, I mean, you think the players, Gene and Sandy Mayer, uh, just a whole host of players that went on. So he would, he knew it. But, you know, in fact, one year, 1982, get this. This is a, shows you how impactful. I'm trying to get Gould into the Tennis Hall of Fame. But at Wimbledon, 16 of the last 32, 8 of the last 16, Two of the last four and one of the last two Stanford grads. Come on. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Dick Gould. 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 Uh, And uh, Connors beat uh, Macaron five sets, 82. Wow. 82, he had that many players in the main draw at Wimbledon all the way to the back second week. That's incredible. And then the women's side too. What was turning pro like for you? It's very tough. Very tough. Two reasons. The first is, you know, it's interesting, like, I wonder if it's true, but it seems like it's true that Federer, Djokovic, you know, Nadal, these guys are nice to the new upcoming players. They give them support. They uh, said, you know, try to get them into this, especially if they're countrymen. But for us, for me, nothing. You know, Lendl, Connors, McEnroe, just no support. Well, those guys, those guys ate what they killed. <laughs> it was, that's exactly right. It was great, though, in a way. I mean, it was a super intention. Lock, walk in the locker room. I think Ash used to say it. Walk in the locker room with Connors and McEnroe. And, you know, you felt like something was going to explode. And it was just a different way. Nastasi, you know, people don't realize right now how intense it was. So I never really felt that support. Did you have, it, did you have any friends? Very few, a couple really nice acquaintances, but, uh, you know, I'd say we'd be in Paris and I'd ask a player, let's go to, you know, the Louvre or let's go to, uh, you know, Musée d'Orsay. They look at me like I was in Quaaludes or something. I was like, what are you talking about? What is that? They're all, it's the same. They're playing video games and listening to iTunes. Well, back then it was a Walkman. And uh, so I, I really didn't fit in. And then the second thing was the, you know, it's very, well, based on, it's, lo- it's lonely. It's a hard, it's a hard life. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're well taken care of, but uh, you wake up in one city, you go to the next city. It's, uh, it's pretty lonely. Do you retain any friends from the tour? Uh, yes, I had a very nice group of friends uh, who were like-minded, uh, Bob Green and Bud Schultz, who is a great player here from New England. Bud Schultz, a great Boston player. Uh, yeah, and then uh, Greg, uh, Glenn Landecker, and some other really nice guys that I stay in touch with. But I'm but, saying, you don't you don't get on the phone and call V-Lander and say, shit, can you believe the way these guys, nothing like that. You don't nah. have friends like that. 
no. Well, I, I see Matt's now and then, and uh, he and I are, you know, very comfortable talking. Sure, and, sure. Uh, Jimmy and John are a different. Lendl, Lendl got a little bit warmer. He was a mean dude. <laughs> Lendl was a mean dude, man. Never really, uh, but he softened up a little bit. You know, never really connected with Boris. He was, uh, you know, these guys were, the egos at the top then were just, you couldn't, just mind-blowing. And it was so much about intimidation. Man, you had some years that were so good. 87, 88, when you close your eyes and you think back, like what stands out, what, what kind of fires into your mind? Uh, the first thing, and I've actually been writing a book, so it's uh, been kind of interesting, but 86, brutal, both exciting and brutal. So I won Queens, and I beat uh, really the, maybe the three best grass quarters. I beat Edberg, Becker, and Connors back-to-back-to-back the week before Wimbledon. Then I'm in the quarters at Wimbledon, and 9-7 in the fifth, I lose to Lendl. So it was like both the excitement of winning a tournament like Queens with that lineup and then getting, you know, I felt like I could beat anybody in the world. So that really set the stage for both the highs and the lows that were to come later. 87, you know, I just, I got really, really good indoors. I mean, I became a really good indoor player. And uh, back then the court was quite quick. So Philadelphia, I won and, it was just uh, Paris. You kind of owned Philadelphia. Did you win it four times? No, I got to the finals four times. Finals four times. 86, I had to pull out of the finals. I beat Noah in the semis, but I pulled a muscle. I couldn't even put my hands above, and I had to – so brutal, I had to pull out of the finals. But then I beat McEnroe in the, semi, in the finals in 87, 188, and then 89, I beat uh, Agassi then lost to uh, Becker in the finals. And for our listeners, the, the Philadelphia tournament was, you know, my dad referred to it as the slam of the winter. It yeah. was as big of an event as there could be. U.S. Pro Indoor. The U.S. Pro Indoor. Marilyn Fernberger, amazing. And what the big thing back then was, uh, and this is why it's, you know, the best, there was six probably six guys in the top 10 in the U S so they wanted to play in the U S so when there's a tournament in the States, you know, you'd get a, a good picking Macaron Connors would always play it. And then you'd throw in a couple of Europeans at the top and then myself and Gilbert and Crickstein and then Agassi jumped in. And so you'd go to these places and they were electric, electric, man, electric. How do you go from being good to, winning tournaments it's one thing to be good it's another thing to close the show yeah you just get a like it's, it's so hard to know you just fall into a space you know I was one of the hardest working guys on the tour that's for sure I was out there grinding uh, my coach Bill Drake had uh, really put me on a very very intense physical training program that uh really made a difference for me at starting in 86, 87, 88. So I'd take a bunch of weeks off and just, it was, it was, he brought a lot of the thinking over that was going on in the, uh, in the Eastern block back before the wall had fallen down, but periodization training uh, and uh, just, just made a huge difference for my certain volley game. Can you explain that a little more clear? When you started training like the East Germans or the, the Czechs, well, or like, what, what, what was it you were doing that maybe had, we hadn't seen before at that time? Well, first of all, everything was measured. And there was a really good understanding of how you build, that, it's very common knowledge now, but how you build what, what they call periodization block. So it was more applicable for track and field, but uh, applicable to other sports. So you'd pick a target date when you want to be peaking. And let's say you start six, seven weeks before that. You'd start with heavy weights. You'd stabilize, do a lot of core work. And then from there, you'd start getting into short, faster and faster bursts uh, with very, very little rest. So it would mimic, you know, playing, let's say I'd mimic a playing a, uh, a 30 second point I'd have five seconds of rest, 
And this, these were all balls that would be fed to me. So it's 10, 12 balls, five second rest. My heart rate would be between 190 and 200. And I could sustain that for 45 minutes. So come on. Yeah. Yeah. So you were that fit. So when you get that fit, you start to feel, you know, invincible in a way. And you fight through those, those doubts because, well, uh, also I was six, four. So, you know, you, you're kind of a, a, uh, I had a good style where I'd put a lot of pressure on players. You were definitely a suffocating player. I just watched before getting ready for this. I was watching you, you know, torture Michael Chang in 91 uh, in that, that time period. <laughs> yeah. He Connors uh, another time and he, uh, cause I was taking I had watched McEnroe destroy him by taking his first and a second serve and coming to net. So I did the same thing. And I killed Jimmy. And afterwards, he said, that's not tennis. That's kamikaze tennis. I loved it. <laughs> he got angry. And that guy was the best out there. Now, what would you just say is your best moment on tour? The best moment for me were two playing for my country. One was Davis Cup in Mexico City. Leo the Valle. Leo the Valle, yeah, it's amazing. So people who've never been to a Davis cup match outside of the United States, he missed. I mean, you think uh, Hartford was something. So we had, first of all, we, we did, were told not to go by the state department, death threats. In <laughs> so they put us in a, who was uh, the team? Who was the team? Brad Gilbert, myself and Flack and Seguso. Mexico city. They put a red clay court in a bull ring and a bull ring. How great is this? They put it in the Plaza del Toros, I think, like the most famous bull ring. <laughs> uh, it wasn't there, but... Uh, no, it wasn't there. He had machine gun carrying bodyguards surrounding us the whole time. <laughs> so we're playing, and there's a mariachi band. And every time I'd try to hit a serve, the band would, like, you know, start kicking up. So I was double faulting all over the place. So finally we beat them. But hang on a second. Uh, for our listeners, Tim played one of the greatest Davis Cup matches that's really ever been played. I think you won 9-7 in the fifth. Yeah, yeah. Crazy match. 11-9. And, 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 that, and that, was the, that was the final day rubber? Yeah. Yeah, final day. And the uh, crowd was going ballistic, you know, to, screaming at me, go home, gringo. I was flipping the crowd off, 15,000 people. And then we beat them afterwards. This is, the, this is how Davis Cup's the best. So we're driving out. We have a small caravan, four or five vans going back to the hotel. A group of the Mexicans cut us off, off the small caravan, and our bodyguards swing open the sliding doors. They have machine guns, and they point them at the cars that are trying to cut us off. It was like being in a Schwarzenegger movie. Unbelievable. And we're just trying to go back to the hotel. How great is this? Uh, we had all the food flown in because they thought they were going to poison us. <laughs> the best. Uh, the best. Crapping my pants, though. I don't think I slept the whole weekend. Uh, the second, you, you said there were two. Uh, this, uh, the other was Olympics. 88 uh, played, won a silver medal. My parents had never seen me play tennis in, as a pro. And uh, as soon as I was named to the team my mom said I'm gonna go watch and she came over to Seoul Korea and uh, you know just eating with you know we had uh, Carl Lewis and Greg Luganis and Janet Evans and you got to go to all the events you watched I went boxing every single night and then the tennis I mean come on winning a well winning a silver medal uh, it was pretty sweet beating Gilbert in the in the in the quarters Brad said, I can't, in his book, I love it. He said, I can't believe I lost to Mayock, but that was, uh, Brad was, I knew how to play Brad pretty well. Yeah, you said, I actually kind of, I, I started up on Twitter a year or two ago where you said that he couldn't hit a forehand down the line or something, that he always uh, would he hit. Pass, backhand passing shot down the line. He could not hit a backhand pass down the line. Because he had this funky grip. He had one grip. And the way the racket would orient uh, at contact, that uh, you just knew that he couldn't go cleanly down the line because he had, had a funk, this funky grip. 
So I would just either know a lob was going up or most likely a cross cross court passing shot. And I just go to the backhand and say, Brad, all right, beat me. So you would just torture his backhand. uh, He couldn't stand it. The 66 mile an hour second serve. Where do you keep that silver medal? That's at home. Oh, actually, I'm I'm a member at the Longwood Cricket Club, one of the great uh, historic clubs. And so it's over there. They have a nice selection of, uh, along with, you know, but they had a beautiful Bud Collins room. That's and cool, man. Over there, yeah. How did your career come to a close? What 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 happens to you when the sun set, sets on you? So uh, basically, I got to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon six times, and what really drove me was the hope of winning Wimbledon. It was really the slam that I thought I could win. And after the sixth time, I lost to Edberg. And I just thought, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get better. I worked unbelievably hard. And I had a, another good year and a half, but uh, I couldn't figure out what could help me get up higher in the rankings. And actually, in the last eight years, I've been writing a book kind of exploring what it is that I needed to do better. And also to try to understand why the American men are struggling so much. And uh, so that, that book should be coming out pretty soon. It's uh, trying to understand, okay, when you get stuck, what, or what for me really needed to change. And uh, I couldn't find it out then. I just, I just, and I lost my motivation when I thought I couldn't win a slam. You burned out. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I was willing to work crazy hard, but if you don't know exactly what you're working on, as opposed to just, I talked to a lot of guys, they say, oh, I'm just, I got to work harder. I got to hit more balls. But when, you know, you do that for eight, 10 years, and then you reach a pinnacle and you are or, or a, a blockade and you can't get through it. I just didn't know what to work on. And it but, was it, but it seems like every era of athlete has a player or or two or three that they can't beat. Courier couldn't beat Sampras. Lendl's record against a lot of guys is like shocking. Yeah, um, but the guys were at the next level. I mean, Courier won four slams and Sure, sure, sure. I just didn't know how to get better. And I think what was happening at that point was, you know, really the understanding of modern tennis was open stance, semi-western grips, better footwork patterns. Uh, they were really starting to take, you know, and this is when uh, Connors and McEnroe are sort of going by the wayside. And now you've got Lendl, then you've got uh, Becker, and then you've got Agassi, and then you've got, and these guys were uh, moving and hitting in a way that uh, was taking the game to another height. And I knew that something, Vilander, I mean, there was something going on that I couldn't get my finger on about movement patterns, about new, new stroke, uh, you know, the length of the stroke had gotten longer, the capacity to generate more spin. And nobody was able to show that to me. And not to say I could have used it, but nobody showed it to me. And I didn't know, I knew there was something wrong with my game, but I didn't know what. Is it true that you worked with Billy Jean at, at some juncture towards the back end of your career? I did. I had a great run with Bill Drake, who was my coach, amazing coach here in New England, coached uh, to myself and Barbara Potter were both top 10. But then I felt I needed something else. And I tried working with Billy. Uh, what an amazing, amazing woman. Fantastic. But it wasn't a good, I was not in a good mental state. And also, Billy just didn't understand the uh, how hard the men were hitting the ball and how fast the men were. So I think she thought that the tactics would work in the past. For me, were not, you know, Lendl, would, Lendl Agassi, these guys were, were running down balls, uh, hitting ball at a, at a pace that uh, I don't think she could quite understand. And that affected how she thought I should play. Is the first volley still as important? It's not as important as it. It's like a, like the first volley used to be the second most important stroke. Yeah, volley, <laughs> volley is a finishing shot now. Right. Back then it was uh, it was a shot in transition, and it's it's and the other thing is short is the new deep. 
So drop shot, finishing with angles. You know, rarely you don't see nearly as much guys volleying through the court because uh, they're sneaking up after power ground strokes and, uh, and ending with guys out of position. So it's really a different game. Uh, it's, a, it's still a critical part of the game, but it is a different game. When did you uh, go to theology school? And, and when you dipped out of, off the tour, did you just move to New York? Is that what happened? Yeah, I got uh, last year I was there uh, in New York with my ex-wife and uh, just I was still very involved in the politics of the game at that point. And I loved it and stuff. But then I felt I wanted to try something different. And so I was in New York and then uh, decided I wanted to I kind of make a joke out of it, sort of like, I went to school to study psychology, to understand myself, and uh, also theology, which I thought was really important. And uh, what I say is I came out after three years realizing that uh, I couldn't, I didn't know myself, and the praying didn't help. <laughs> now, did you go to Columbia? To uh, It was actually Union Theological Seminary, uh, which is associated with Columbia. But you weren't trying to be a priest, no, no, I was just interested in those things. And I actually worked as a chaplain, a non-dominational chaplain in the hospital for, I, had, uh, I was going to get certified in that. And then I uh, worked 13, 1400 hours on the floor uh, with in the psychiatric ward and the, the cardiac ward. And I was just really looking for myself too. You know, I think to, tennis was so consuming and I was pretty lost after tennis. It was really, it's a very, very difficult thing to give up or not give up just to move on for, from. And uh, so I spent a number of years kind of searching. And then ultimately uh, I started to get back into the sport around 2005, really. Started to work your way back in. And what are you now? Are you a high performance coach? Are you trying to make pro players? What are you trying to do over there? Let me just take one step back first and then I'll get into that. So uh, when I got back into the sport, I started to teach at a local private club. And I think what I felt... You were teaching at Manhattan Plaza, correct? Plaza, yeah. And what I felt was that there were a lot of coaches, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but who were former players who didn't really know that much. They think they, because they played at a high level, that they understand about teaching. And I think it was good that I knew that I didn't know much. And especially when you start working with adults, beginners, and you realize, well, what really has to happen out here to help these people get better? And that was the fascination uh, for me. So I really spent 10 years in the trenches. And then, uh, but now I was at the USTA for a couple of years working under Patrick McEnroe. And, and you lacerated him. You, that wasn't a good experience. No, it wasn't. I, I felt that the two things. One is I felt that Patrick was a part, he was there part-time doing a job that demanded double time. So I just didn't understand why the USTA would let him be a broadcaster at the same time that he was trying to turn around USTA tennis, US, you know, and, and we're still, you know, suffering under the fact that our men have not gotten good in the last 15 years. And I told Patrick as much. I said, Patrick, you need to be around. We don't, you know, we don't see you. You don't know the parents, you don't. And that was obviously not very, you know, and then the other thing is I felt that Jose Higueras was a great coach for older young pros. Great at that, but not great at developing players. And I had kids who were nine, 10 years old. And I said, we need more developmental coaches. And that uh, got me in hot water. And I, but I still believe it. We, we need, you know, other countries have, Coaches training for two years, three years, full-time, under supervision, understanding biomechanics, understanding uh, developing in different age groups. And Jose didn't know that world. And uh, I, you know, I thought it was my job as a, a player with stature 
and a really serious coach to let him know that. And it really angered both of them. So that didn't go that well. <laughs> yeah, man, but you stick, you stick by, you know, what you say uh, makes sense. And I think that a lot of people are always like, well, how is it that this kind of jockocracy can live when a guy's on ESPN, a guy's coaching this one, and then he's supposed to be in charge of, a major operation getting paid high, you know, high six figure salaries, seven figures, seven figures, Patrick. Yeah. He was getting paid over a million dollars. Oh, wow. That's a good gig. That's a good gig. If you can get it. Plus uh, ESPN plus he was getting Davis cup for a while too. So, so it just, uh, you know, and I, I just felt, okay, let this should be a dialogue, but they weren't that interested in my input, but uh, you know, they did their best. I just think, you know, We've got to develop better coaching. So now, so now that brings us to you at the Mayotte Academy. Uh, Tim Mayotte Academy here at Thoreau. It's a tough job because I want to make New England a factor in tennis again in the United States. Right now we're really at the bottom of uh, the number of good juniors we produce, never mind the fact that we produce very few pros. So I've been here a year and a half. We're spending a lot of time training the coaches. We're, we have a really good uh, program right from the bottom to the top. But it's about creating an excitement and a culture in New England again that hasn't existed in a long time. Part of that, last year we had uh, 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 USTA uh, ITF $60,000 women's tournament, which was one of the most successful uh, of the year. We had Christina McHale came in and uh, uh, Caroline Dolhai won the title. We had it on the tennis channel, sold out the last couple of days and our kids get to see really great tennis. That lights the fire under them and the parents to get excited about developing players. So we're doing everything, coaches training. I think we're doing a great job with the kids. I know we are. And, uh, and also bringing tennis, great tennis to New England. Those three prongs over time will make a huge difference. Tim Mayock doing it at the Thoreau Academy, right where right at the cradle of uh, the United States, baby, yeah. Let's move into our fourth set. This is what we call the 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. We go fast. Perfect. I say it, and you say what comes into your mind, okay? Yes. Where do you keep your trophies? Uh, my uh, bookshelf. My bookshelf, house. bookshelf in your house. No, you could say Longwood Cricket Club. And the Longwood Cricket Club. Yeah. Where do you keep the Paris Indoor Trophy? Home. That's at your house. Okay. Uh, where do you keep – did you save your credentials? And if so, where do you keep them? No, I did not. I give them uh, – every year I uh, didn't save those credentials, and now when I go to the Open, I give it to one of the kids and my program. You give them as a gift, sort of. You gift them. What's the craziest thing you ever did with prize money? Did you ever just fly to Puerto Rico to see a chick or I don't know? <laughs> uh, took the Concorde a couple times. You flew the Concorde home from, from Wimbledon? Twice. What was the cost on that? Back then, I think it was 3600 one way, which is probably about 12000 now. Coolest thing, three hours. Three hours? Yeah. Leonard Bernstein, Keith Richards. I mean, it just. Those guys were on your flight. Yeah. Fly the Concord. Had a, had a scotch with Keith Richards. How great oh, is that? Oh, come on. Yeah. That that's, was one of my highlights. Bro, that's worth the 36. I uh, know. That's unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. Because he had seen the match at Wimbledon. He had seen it, and he, he sent a drink over to me. And then I went up and uh, said hi, and we talked for a couple hours. Oh, fantastic, man. That's a, that just made my day. Um, your best win? Is it Levaye? Yeah, or I would say uh, the, the three at, uh, at Queens, Becker, Edbert, Connors. Back to back to back to win Queens. Come on, man. Did you beat Connors in the final? Yeah. Woo! Your worst loss. I think you said it early in the show. Yeah, losing the most painful, losing to Becker in the five sets at uh, Hartford. Brutal. Still, still have bad dreams. And you took the Peter Pan bus home to punish yourself. 
<laughs> Sitting in that toilet in the back. $6 bus. <laughs> How great is that? Stopped at the Worcester bus station. I probably got a, uh, a dog there in the bus station. Did anybody know who you were on the bus? A couple, uh, a couple of people. Uh, leave me alone. Just leave you alone. Yeah. Your favorite tournament? Uh, Wimbledon. No, I'll check. Yeah, Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Your favorite city? Paris. Your favorite forehand? N- uh, Nadal. Your favorite backhand? Waranka. Volleys? Edberg. They said for a long time your forehand volley was considered amongst the best of the world. Yeah, I had a great forehand volley. Edberg, unbelievable. Uh, your favorite serve? Sampras. Best endorsement deal you ever had? Mm. I saw Ray-Ban on your shirt in 91. The best I didn't have was uh, Oakley sunglasses just getting started. They said, if you wear these while you play, you, I'll give you 150 grand. I tried so desperately to like them. I couldn't see the ball. You couldn't play in the Oakley Blades. I tried them. So they gave me five grand and, uh, you know, 48 pairs every six months. Problem is my family stole all of them. I'd come home, you know, from uh, <laughs> a long trip to be one crummy pool at the bottom of the box. So that was the hardest one to give up. $150,000, I couldn't, I couldn't see the ball right. Let's move into the fifth and final set. We call this the king of the court. Yeah. I'm, I, I approach this with some trepidation because I know how, um, how thoughtful and opinionated you can be. Uh, if you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just no aggravation, a swing of the racket, what would it be? It would be making a life uh, a work a working wage for lower ranked players. The most important thing right now, you can't survive at the at the tier below. It just you, and it, it discourages so many players from playing. What number does it become unfair? Around a hundred. So any guy, any player below 100 can't live. Yeah, and so it, then it becomes about resources. So the people who are supported by their foundation, their federations or a sponsor are the only ones who can spend the two to three years it takes to break through. And that really just separates, uh, you know, you lose a lot of uh, enthusiasm, a lot of really good athletes, a lot of folks who just, and, it, you know, it's gotten worse. I've got a couple young uh, women here who they have been really fighting but it's tough even pre-COVID because they're just trying to put some matches together to get a few dollars and to go out and play and right now these are really really good tennis players and they can't even break even Hey man I know I've been pestering you for some time to uh, get on the microphone and uh you did not disappoint. This was really a pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved it. I cool, love brother. Keeping me from the kids, though. They're out there grinding away. You got to come down and hit some balls with us down here at the Throw Tim Man Academy. My man, I might be there in inside of the week. My new task in life is to try to become more like Nick Terry. So I have to say what I'm promoting over and over. This is a shout-out to Nick. Yeah, I know Nick is uh, – his health is a little shaky at the moment. Well, so I heard what happened. Yeah, no, I think he had – he's you know, he had a little difficulty. I think he might have collapsed on the golf course. I'm, I'm unsure, but you might want to check in on that. Nick was unbelievable to me. So helpful, so nice. Tim Mayotte, uh, we will see you down the road. I will tell you there's a book that uh, by uh, – an author named uh, Nathaniel Philbrick called Bunker Hill oh, that, yeah. uh, that I think I'll send you. You, you yeah. give me your address when we finish, but um, uh, you'll feel the neighborhood where you live in a different way after you read this book. It's about the revolution. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Thank you very much. Tim Mayotte, you are released. Huge thank you to Tim Mayotte and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. 
see them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. We just re-upped the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the quarantine classic. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrebatu, and the Bear. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.